beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn to the back of your Psalters on page 55 and refer with me to the words of our catechism from Lord's Day 26 concerning holy baptism. Page 55. How are you admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to you? Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely, for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ, so that we may more and more die into sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Well, congregation, here in our series on the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we enter into a most important and a most edifying series of doctrines as they concern the sacraments. And we began our study on the sacraments in the previous Lord's Day by considering that they are all framed in in our catechism in reference to the covenant of grace. And in particular, our focus is upon the new covenant, which is the last and final administration of the one covenant of grace, which has existed since this world began and the Lord began to call and to gather his church. We saw from Romans 11 that the covenant of grace, it embraces both the visible church of the called, all those included in the great olive tree from the Old Testament unto the new, who are separated unto the visible church. But likewise, also within that visible church, there is the invisible church of the elect, those appointed unto eternal life. And it is indeed the purpose of the covenant of grace to gather God's elect unto the spiritual body of Christ and to receive salvation. We further saw that the sacraments are connected to the covenant of grace in this way, not that they are converting ordinances, not that they give 
us that spiritual life in Christ that is given by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the word of God. But rather the sacraments have an important purpose as signs and seals of that promise of the gospel or the covenant of grace, whereby that faith which we receive is strengthened and matured through the use of these sacraments and through the work of the Holy Spirit in believers. And so we saw this illustrated particularly in the case of circumcision, not a new covenant sacrament, but an old covenant sacrament given unto Abraham and to his seed as a sign and as a seal of the faith, or rather the righteousness of faith, I should say. That gracious covenant with Abraham and with his seed, which is the same covenant which we are under, under the New Testament. We learn much about that. And I'll just remind you of one thing about that sacrament of circumcision. The cutting of the flesh in the foreskin of the babies was itself called the covenant. Remember, that Jehovah, in speaking to Abraham, said that it was the covenant in their flesh. It was the covenant itself. And this is something we must get used to as we continue this series on the sacraments, because where God speaks about the sacraments and when the servants of God speak about the sacraments in the scriptures, often they speak about the sacrament as though it itself were all the blessings of the covenant of grace. Now, of course, the covenant includes much more than that visible sign and seal. And yet all that God had said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people, and so forth, well, that was comprehended within the sacrament as a sign and seal of it. So likewise, our catechism draws out a number of cases where this applies to a different sacrament, that of baptism. Notice in the answer of 71, it cites uh, different cases where it proves that baptism was uh, given by Christ and commanded to be used, the washing of water. But likewise, you have that it is actually referred to in a number of places as the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. You can consult the proof texts that are given there from the book of Titus and of Acts. But this as well is something that we must get used to. The way the sacraments work is that they contain the promises of the covenant of grace, including all the blessings of it found only in Christ and As they are spoken of in the scripture, they are spoken of not only as the external sign, but also the spiritual grace that is signified by by those signs and which is received by those who use these sacraments rightly. So it's a most important matter, this matter of baptism in particular, which we are now to study It was referred to, you notice in the text that we read together from Galatians chapter 3, particularly in verse 27. 
For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And once again here, you have baptism spoken of in the most highest terms possible as being included in Christ and thereby receiving his benefits. This baptism is the matter of the most utmost importance that we understand it rightly. We want to avoid all of the pitfalls that would come into us and would rob us of the comforting grace of the, go- of the gospel and of the sacraments by confusing these things. And I think that this chapter of Galatians 3, it is a wonderful place to set forth this strong relationship between Christ's amazing benefits in the covenant of grace and how that is confirmed and sealed in the sacraments. By God's grace, let us consider simply the sacrament of baptism. And we will consider three things from this text as well as the surrounding context. First, what baptism is not. Second, what baptism is. And in third place, receiving the blessing of baptism. So what baptism is not, what baptism is, and the blessing of baptism baptism received well you understand that the apostle paul had a great and important purpose in writing this epistle to the galatians it's the epistle where the apostle means business there is a most serious and important matter that is going on here maybe you notice that children just as the opening verses were being read it almost sounds as though paul is angry Listen to what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? You imagine if a minister got up in a church and began to talk to the congregation that way? You foolish people, who has cast you under a terrible spell? I bet you if the minister were to talk that way, you would think, wow, that's a serious matter that must be discussed there. Well, it is a serious matter. Because false teachers had crept into the church there in Galatia and were seeking to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news of salvation in Christ. Christ crucified and risen for sinners. And this Wonderful salvation which Christ has accomplished for sinners, it is received by faith. Not through any other way, but then by faith only. May we receive the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, what these false teachers were saying is we need to add something to that. The true gospel which the servants of Christ preach is not enough. No, we need something more than faith in Jesus Christ to be justified or declared righteous before God. And for them, what they proposed is there must also be circumcision. Not only that you be justified by faith, but also through the work of circumcision. This was the only thing that they added and Others might say, well, that isn't so bad, is it? Surely just adding one thing would not be so serious as this. And yet Paul 
treats it as the greatest of seriousness. Verse 3, are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered in so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? Basically saying that if this is true of you, if you would really confess that you would find your justification through this work of circumcision, it proves that you have no understanding of the gospel and no interest in Christ at all. A terrifying thing. And as you progress through this whole chapter, there's a tightly reasoned argument here. It's drawing upon the rich sources of the history of the Lord's dealings with Old Testament saints and the outworking of his saving covenant. And it's in that context that he refers to baptism, verse 27. Well, let's read verse 26 as well. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, others might imagine that Paul is changing the subject or he's otherwise going on a tangent. But no, this is exactly on target, exactly what needs to be said. A right understanding of baptism and a right understanding of the gospel, they go together so clearly that it isn't detracting from his argument. It's rather supporting it most beautifully. And so in order to rightly unfold this argument, let us first ask this question. What can we discern about, first, what baptism is not? What is it not? Well, the most clear thing we can learn is that it is not a sacrament of the old covenant. Not a sacrament of the old covenant. You see, one thing that you can trace through this whole chapter is very clear that with the coming of Christ in the flesh, his dying on the cross and rising from the dead, there is now something completely new that has begun. The new covenant the new administration of the covenant of grace has begun. And so some things have certainly changed. Last time we spoke about circumcision as it was instituted by God under the old covenant in the days of Abraham. And there it had a most important purpose that was to be a sign and seal of that covenant. But now you have people who wanting to hold on to this as well as the other things which were properly belonging to the old covenant after Christ had already fulfilled them. As Paul is explaining, this itself is a denial of Jesus Christ's saving work if taken to that logical extreme. Look there in verse 19. Wherefore serveth, serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What is going on there? What is he talking about? Well, you see that he is particularly focusing upon the old covenant as it was administered in the days of Moses. And so he's emphasizing that those things which happened in the days of Moses with the giving of the law 
unto Moses as a kind of mediator, and through the ministry of angels, in fact, not commonly spoken of, but they were also involved with that giving of the law in Mount Sinai. And with it, the many ceremonial ordinances that were attached to that covenant. And so circumcision, while given in the days of Abraham, took on this new significance in its connection with all the different uh, worship uh, rules that were applied to the Jewish church in those days concerning sacrifices, the killing of animals, concerning what clothing you could wear, no mixed fibers, concerning dietary rules. You could eat the clean animals, but not the unclean animals, and so on, multiplying these ceremonial laws which were set up and which the great argument of, of uh, Paul here is that they have expired with the coming of the realization of those things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They had a purpose which was to point towards him, to nurture the faith of of the elect. And yet now that the very object of that faith has come, they no longer serve this purpose. And so he refers to it later on as a schoolmaster. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And so it would be very wrong for religious reasons to carry on this rule of circumcision. Paul is reasoning. If you read earlier on in the uh, book, you know this had very practical and terrible consequences. It was bringing in a kind of bondage and division in the church in those days. There you had Peter, who was a true believer. He was a true a servant of Christ. He even preached among the Gentiles. But as he became under the influence of these people who were corrupting the gospel, he began to say, well, maybe in order to avoid offending them, I'm not going to associate with the Gentile Christians anymore. Because after all, uh, we are Jews and we are circumcised and we are separate from them. And Paul has to confront him to his face and he has to confront this false teaching, saying that this reality of the gospel in Jesus Christ under the new covenant has changed all of that. Those ceremonial laws are now fulfilled. And so how appropriate now that he would speak of not an Old Testament sacrament, but a New Testament sacrament, a sacrament that is an administration of the new covenant. Notice that right after he speaks of the unity of the Christians in their baptism, He goes on to say in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And indeed, you see how the new covenant and and its baptism, it has this effect of of removing these barriers, which were formerly foundational to your identity, now they are secondary in relation to your primary identity in Christ. Circumcision, it separated the Jew from the Gentile, who were, for the most part, excluded from the Old Covenant Church. But baptism, 
it is a sign that they are all united in the New Testament church as they each one confess Christ, whether Jew or Gentile or any other background. Circumcision, it separated men from women. It was an ordinance given to children, yes, but only the baby children could be, uh, male children could be included. But now we have, have baptism, which in its superior character includes both men and women, boys and girls. And likewise, even the divisions of bond or free, slave or free person, they as well are no different whatsoever. Indeed, it was one of the condemnations of Christians who, who had slaves and mistreated those slaves that they would have to be worshiping in the same congregation as them and and have the same baptism applied to them. You see how the the logic of the scripture breaks down even injustice that is unbiblical. In any case, there is this fundamental difference that is here. Circumcision is applied to the old covenant. While good and gracious as a covenant of grace... Yet it is, now brought, it is now replaced by the greater and fuller revelation of the grace of God in the actual person of Jesus Christ and in his baptism, which he is commanded to be administered. Did he not command his church, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. This, as the sure sign that he is with us, and that he would have all nations gathered unto his church and covenant. So that in the first place we can say, it is not, it is not a sacrament of the old covenant. But we also add this as well. Baptism is not a sign or a sacrament of the covenant of works. And this is where we must be very clear because what you found in older writings on the, on the book of Galatians and the argument that Paul is making is that commentators tended to perhaps de-emphasize that important theme that The role of uh, the New Testament is to bring in Jews and Gentiles into one family. Very true. But what you're seeing today is that what's being de-emphasized is what our Father saw as, as the most fundamental important thing about this book, which is setting forth the clarity of the gospel of justification by faith alone. Justification not through works of the law, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Indeed, you even have people openly denying this doctrine and misapplying the argument that is being used here, saying it's all about old covenant or new covenant. There's nothing at all here about that radical difference between the ways in which the law and the gospel relate to the sinner. But if we would follow the apostle's arguments, very clear he is talking also about the covenant of works. That covenant made formerly with Adam in the garden, requiring perfect obedience to the law, which he broke. And which has resulted in abiding curse and condemnation for all his posterity. And the apostle references this 
particularly in reference to that Mosaic covenant, because while it was a gracious covenant, no less than the covenant with Abraham, it also had this purpose of setting forth the requirements of that covenant of works in order to expose the radical guiltiness of sinners. Notice how the apostle speaks about this back in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now you notice that there's these quotations from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, and from Leviticus 18, verse 5. And they communicate basically the same truth, only from different respects. The one speaks in this way, that the one who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law is under the curse. You must do everything the law says or you are cursed. And the verse from Leviticus that he quotes in verse 12 there, which is that the, the man that does them, the one that does the works of the law shall live in them. Do you want to live? Do you want the blessing of God? Then obey the law. Now, what do you find there through those quotations from the days of Moses and the laws that God gave to Moses. Well, surely you have setting forth the absolute holiness of God, the absolute holiness of the law, and the absolute requirement that the one who is yet under the covenant of works, inherited from Adam, that one must obey the law or he is under the curse. And this is, this is so important to gospel preaching that I sometimes fear it is assumed rather than actually said. The reality is that the one who would seek to establish their own righteousness through the works of the law is engaging in an utterly futile exercise, not through the works of the law. Can a man be justified? Why? Is there any problem with the law? None whatsoever. The law is pure. The law is good. The law is sweet. It is the character of God. Who can say anything against the law? The problem is with us. The problem is with our heart. The problem is with our desires that go away from God. The problem is with our account, which is filled with sins against the law. And yet you can still go to any street corner and begin to talk about the gospel and say, how can you have any hope to receive eternal life if you will not believe in Jesus Christ? And they will say the same thing. Well, I'm a good person. Never stolen anything. Never murdered anyone. And what is going on? Well, the searching character of the law and its spirituality and its purity, it is neglected. This terrible reality that the one who is under the law in its condemning power, under the covenant of works, is yet without hope. And so what an atrocious, terrible thing it is 
when those who claim to be Christians turn baptism into a new covenant of works. Indeed, you had the, the Judaizers that came into the book of Galatia took something like circumcision, which was meant to set forth the grace and the mercy of God received by faith alone. And what did they do? They turned it into a covenant of works, detaching it from the command and blessing and promise of the Lord so that now it is just something that is done in order to attain a righteousness which is not of faith and not of Christ. So also, can it be done with with baptism? And is there any more striking example than the Roman Catholic Church? Indeed, rightly called by our fathers the Church of Antichrist, for it does oppose and seek to replace the true Jesus Christ with a false Christ and a false salvation. What would they say about baptism? Well, they would hold that it is almost a magical incantation. Here is a baby. Bring in the baby. Apply water to the baby. What has happened? Well, through the application of the water on the body, the the priest, he has taken away the original sin of that baby so that the baby has, in in essence, a blank slate. And so... They will not be condemned for their original sins. They have now to begin this long process of trying to acquire their own merit, their own righteousness, which they can use in order to shorten their stay in purgatory in order to eventually attain heaven. What is that but a resurfacing of the covenant of works, utterly overturning the whole logic of the apostle here. Verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For, quoting Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. An absolute opposition. Covenant of works says the one who does these things shall live by them. The covenant of grace says the just shall live by faith, not by what you do, but by simply receiving what Christ has done on your behalf. And so it is that the Roman Catholic Church and any other church that would detach the teaching of baptism from the gospel, they erect a new man-centered creature righteousness in the place of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and thereby damn souls as they lead them away from the one source of salvation. Let us never, let us never give the slightest Compromise to those who would so mar and tarnish this ordinance and sacrament of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we to look at the sacrament of baptism, it is not at all about us earning justification, not at all about that. It is rather about the undeserved free grace of God in the gospel. And so with that, Let me turn out not what baptism is not, but what baptism is positively. You notice how the apostle speaks of the cross there in verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. An astonishing thing here that the argument that the Apostle is using, and it brings together all these different threads. It holds forth through a quotation from Deuteronomy about an accursed criminal raised up on a tree, signifying that he is rejected and cursed of God. Holding forth that that principle is applied now unto Christ who is raised up on a tree, raised up on a cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He was made a curse, it says. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. An astonishing thing. Here is the blameless Savior and mediator provided for you and for me, for sinners, to fulfill the requirements that we never could, to satisfy the demands of the law, and that without any unrighteousness found in him, the spotless Lamb of God, slain for the salvation of sinners. And this is not a new thing. It's not coming out of nowhere. But it's, it itself is the fruition of what was promised unto Abraham. We spoke of that last time, speaking of that gracious covenant which the Lord made with Abraham. And as you trace out this argument, you see that this covenant is one, of the, one and the same in the days of Abraham and his seed, now with believers and their seed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, how it is uh, fleshed out here in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now it's important to recognize what is being said there. There are different ways people have argued this. Some have said that the ultimate way to understand that is that the promises given to Abraham and to his seed were not to his children. No, they were given to Christ, who was a seed of Abraham. He was a descendant of Abraham, according to the flesh. And so the promises belong to him. Well, in a a way, you could say this, this is true, but it's not the argument that is being made there, I would argue. Contrast that with me with a verse that's found in the book of of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, where the word Christ is used to describe not only him as a person, but all of his spiritual body with him, the church of the elect. For as the body is one, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, for as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And you can look at the context. Very clear. This is referring to the body of true believers, elect believers as the body of Christ, and therefore spoken of as Christ, as one, both the head and the body, under one name. And if you continue reading, you'll see the discussion again turns to baptism, which is interesting, uh, an interesting parallel with what you have in Galatians 3. First, speaking of the unity of the elect church in Christ, and now transitioning to baptism also in our own text. 
Well, look again at what's said there. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And what is being said there is that those promises were given unto, in particular, the elect. Yes, indeed, given to all without distinction, offered to all without distinction. But in terms of their ultimate fulfillment, it belonged to the elect as those who would receive the blessing of the covenant of grace. The seed, including those children numbered among the seed of Abraham, who were chosen unto salvation, chosen unto the spiritual body of Christ. And so you have here this this fleshed out and this carried forward as the one covenant of grace united under both Old Testament and New Testament. The common promise being to gather one people under one head, one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have it spoken of in this glorious way in in verses 26 and following. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor uh, neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What a strong word to say that whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are Abraham's children according to the promise. Those numbered among the elect, including not only those who were descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, but also those who were descendants of Abraham according to the spirit. Those united unto Jesus Christ, and he is the head of the elect, the true heir of those promises together with all of the spiritual seed. So that is what we are to see here. When we see baptism... We see that it is a sign of the covenant of grace, not the covenant of works. And the covenant of grace, particularly in its saving work, as it concerns the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really what our catechism is getting at. You recall that on Lord's Day 26, it's this that is focused upon. You think of baptism. What are you to think of? Yes, the external entrance into the visible church. But the emphasis is primarily on how it concerns the invisible church of the elect. How art thou administered and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee? Thus that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereunto the promise that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul that is from all my sins as I am washed externally by water by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. Now, is it the case that all those baptized are certainly forgiven of their sins because they are washed in the blood of Christ? It is not so with all of the visible church who are baptized, but it does Hold true for those 
who are among the invisible church. For them, whether grown or of a young age, these promises are certainly true for them. And in question 20, what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive God by the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood that he shed for us by his sacrifice on the cross and also to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ and so that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and, unblame, and unblameable lives. You see that there's very practical reference there. For the one uh, who has received the promises of the covenant of grace and received the blessings of those promises, then all these things hold true. They are washed in the blood of Christ and as well renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so it is this powerful motivation in order to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up for, from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we, if, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we, should be, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And so what deep, rich spiritual significance belongs to the water that is brought out for the sacramental washing, appointed by Christ, in order there would be this visible sign of his people's washing in the blood of Christ, so that all of their sins are utterly removed, utterly dissolved through the powerful washing of his death on their behalf. And they themselves brought unto newness of life through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. These are the things held forth in baptism congregation. This is what it means to be, have it as a sacrament of the covenant of grace. And so with that, we move to our third and last thought, which is, the receiving of the blessings of this uh, sacrament. It's very clear both from our catechism as well as from the teaching of the apostle that baptism was always meant to bless those who receive it in faith. For all those who would rightly receive baptism in faith, receiving not mere um, where promise, rather not merely receiving the washing, but rather the promise of that shed blood of Jesus Christ on their behalf, receiving that in faith, then this is the most sacred, the most holy, the most precious of ordinances. For it confirms from the very uh, ordinance of Christ that these things are realized in them. That's verse 26 again. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The one who's been converted unto the gospel may receive their baptism, whether before or after their conversion, as the true and undoubted promise of the Lord that their sins are forgiven. 
the one who has fled unto Christ Jesus with the weakest of faith, the most problematic faith, which yet truly rests in the risen Savior, yet has this sure confirmation and seal that their sins are forgiven. It is designed to strengthen your faith, to grow your faith. But what of the one without any faith? One of the one who has the sign of the new covenant in Jesus Christ sealed unto them who yet have no faith whatsoever. Well, indeed, we may say that the promises of Christ the mediator are offered unto you. They are held forth. And yet what we may not say is that the blessings of those covenant are belong to you until you receive them in faith. The one who without faith yet takes comfort in their baptism is essentially replicating the error of the Pharisees and the Judaizers and the other false teachers, which is that ultimately it is of works after all, whether my own works or the works of my parents or whatever it may be. But no, if we would say it is salvation by works, it is only the works of Christ that count for anything. The works of Christ and the righteousness of Christ received only by faith. Take your baptism, congregation, and look higher than merely the water. Look unto that fountain of blood which was shed for you. Look unto that sacrificial death that Christ gave on behalf of sinners. Apart from that, if you would enter into the judgment before Christ without that true faith in Christ, then you will have only a baptism which adds to your condemnation. Christ coming so close, offering his promises unto you, and yet you hardening your heart in disbelief and disobedience. May it not be so. Consider this baptism ordained by Christ. Consider its application even unto you, dear one, and see that there is a sufficient Savior held forth here. There is one who has come this close, not that you would perish, but that you would cast yourself upon his mercy. And in seeing that your salvation is found only in him, allow that to strengthen and to mature that faith, such that you may confess together with Paul, for as many of us as have been baptized into Christ Jesus have put 